Welcome once again to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, the greatest living American writer, the Alex Trebek of entertainment podcasts, Neil Pollock. We are at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and films and streaming TV. This week, no books. Not that books aren't important, but we have some film and TV stuff to talk about. And we're going to lead off by talking to Book and Film Globe contributor William Schwartz about the movie Vivo and Lin-Manuel Miranda's continued rise through the ranks of Hollywood, even though not that many people know who he is in the big picture and his work might not be as good as we think. Regardless, we're going to talk about it and we're going to lead this week with a song from the Buena Vista Social Club, Candela, from their legendary mid-90s album that you could hear at any tapas bar or NPR-related gathering at the time. The Buena Vista Social Club was the soundtrack for every good liberal's life then, as it should be now. Up next, we're talking to Book and Film Globe contributor William Schwartz. William has written many interesting pieces for us. Uh, he was covering the South Korean media beat for a while, but he has since branched out and has covered all kinds of topics. Uh, William's most recent piece for us is about uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who we've covered on Book and Film Globe. And uh, most recently, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda has an animated film out on Netflix called Vivo. And William had some interesting observations about that. William, hello. How are you? Well, I'm doing well. Thanks. All right. So listen. So this Lin Manuel Miranda, uh, it's like a, it's an animated film called Vivo, and it's it's set largely. It seems to be set largely in Cuba. If I if I'm, I haven't seen it, but I, if I'm not mistaken, better parts of the movie are in Cuba. I would say it starts out there, then it branches out into Florida. Right. So uh, the and. It, it's but it's set in the world of Cuban culture because obviously Florida is is you know sort of the expatriate capital of Cuban culture in America. Oh, the thing that really struck out stuck out to me about the movie is it's not something you could reasonably call modern Cuba culture. It's the Cuban culture that the extremely vague traditional image people associate with, as I mentioned, the Argo Buena Vista Social Club. Um, it's not something that's like traditional music culture still exists in Cuba, obviously, but it's not like something that you associate with it on a day-to-day basis. Like it's the main thing. It's like, you know, Venice and the gondoliers. Like there are other things going on in Italy besides that. It would seem very silly if that was like the only thing you met your movie about Italy would make Italy seem like. And it's kind of the same feeling with Vivo with Cuba. You have America being presented as this land of wonder and opportunity because the owner, the elderly owner of the titular Kinkajou, I'm not sure I'm even pronouncing it right, the name. It's a a Kinkajou, yeah. Kinkajou, yeah. They make a lot of hay out of just the monkey having kind of a funny funny species name. It's not really much of a joke, which is kind of how I felt a lot about Vivo overall, is just there's not really very many actual jokes I ended up paying attention more to the actual world building is to amuse myself. It is um not the kind of thing I would normally watch. I was with some of my family uh, about a week or two ago, and this just came up as a thing, some family-friendly thing to watch with the kids on Netflix. And what interested me about it was 
I knew that Lin-Manuel Miranda was involved because I'd seen a brief clip of it um, while browsing YouTube, I think. But they had absolutely no idea who Lin-Manuel Miranda is. Right, because you'd think, like, if you if in our, like, circles, in my media circles, Lin-Manuel Miranda is some sort of cultural god, right? He's, like, the everywhere. He's everywhere, and he is, you know, ha Hamilton is revered like the Bible among people I know. You don't really need to know who Lin-Manuel Miranda is in order to get it, and honestly, it works a lot better if you don't know any anything about that particular culture at all, like... The screenwriter, whose name escapes me offhand, who worked with him on In the Heights, was also, I keep wanting to say Gustano, but I'm not sure I'm supposed to use that word, a Gustano, which is to say she's descended from people who left Cuba ages ago. So there is this weird kind of tension that it's a bit, it's a vision of Cuba described by people who have not been to Cuba for a very long time. Now, the guy who voices Vivo's owner, he, he's a Buena Vista Social Club person, so it's not like completely bereft of, bereft of any kind of contribution from people who have been to Cuba recently, but it's still a very archaic image. Well, you know, in Buena Vista Social Club, I, I'm not exactly sure how old you are, but that was something that was floating around in the 90s, you know, and that, and that was, it was sort of a, this idealized vision of Cuba um, presented to mostly like a, a broad American audience, but largely a liberal American audience. And it was it was it was that you couldn't go to a restaurant without hearing or anywhere without hearing that album. I know I played it over and over and over again, and it's just so odd to me that that culture has has once again reemerged, especially given that Cuba is really in the news and that the you, the Cuban people seem to at least seem to be attempting to rise up against their authoritarian government. I think that's definitely part of the weird part about it is. I don't think all movies should have political consciousness or movies or TV shows. I know some of the commenters get the impression, unsurprisingly, that I think they do because I tend to write a lot about that particular topic. I don't think they all need to, but Vivo, in Vivo, it's so aggressively acts. The aggressive abstinence is kind of bizarre, at least sort of because of that context, because there's stuff going on in Cuba right now. It's a place that... We were supposed to be opening up relations with them, and it seems like we're already worse than we were like 10 years ago when supposedly it was going to open back up again over Obama. And now it's actually degraded. And now we're, we get a Buena Vista Social Club throwback style kind of movie that is even, is even going further back, like a pre-cell phone era version. And really, it's kind of surprising how just ignoring the political elements of the plot overall even the more technical elements of the plot, it still kind of feels like an ancient artifact of a movie because like, there's one big plot point as an example. The big plot point is Vivo trying to get his master's song to the woman he worked to this famous singer that he worked with several decades ago, but she moved to Miami decades ago and he hasn't seen her ever since then. And they lose the song at one point. Sorry, huge spoiler. But it doesn't actually occur to anybody to, like, you know, take a cell phone picture of the song or do anything like that because, because we're basically living in a very far-off bygone era. There are some very scattered, more modern references, like a Girl Scout troop that um, is highly environmentalist in a way that's kind of ambiguous. I can't tell whether the overly woke troop that thinks that, that Kinkajou should be going under quarantine because... 
because he's a wild animal from overseas who should not have been allowed on the airplane in the first place. It's not something that really makes any kind of sense if you try to look at any one individual piece with any other individual piece. Like, it's really easy to nitpick, and you, do, you, you shouldn't necessarily nitpick it. Like, that's not, in my opinion, at least the best way to go about criticism, but just, like, from a more narrative level, you've also got the discomfort of the realistic animals also existing with realistic humans, but the realistic humans cannot understand the realistic animals. And I'm, I have to use these terms very loosely. I mean, in the terms that they're both intelligent, like there is an entire way, way more of the movie than I ever would have thought takes place in the Everglades because they get stuck there on the way to Miami. And that's like for real kind of dangerous. They're doing stuff that logically would result in, you know, these children and probably the monkey too, you know, dying uh, but it's all pretended in very, uh, very harmless and cartoonish manner, and it's often very hard to square these very strange creative choices with attempting a serious arc about nostalgia and lost love with the Cuban guy who, another spoiler, which is super fast in the movie itself, dies really fast, and we're out of Cuba really fast. Yeah, it's just, it's a movie that I'm not surprised that it got really good reviews because... <laughs> It's a mass market. It's a mass market animation release. Lin Manuel Miranda is highly involved in it, but I am kind of surprised. It just it really doesn't seem to be that much of a serious defense for it, because it, it's not like. And this goes back to the Netflix and the Climb piece that I put out a while back too. Is just you used to associate Netflix with like the more avant-garde, the more avant-garde films from other countries. Not like. Not like things you couldn't show to kids, just more like more offbeat stuff from international animation studios like Secret of Kells, that kind of thing. And all those animation studios are still around. They still try to make money and they still struggle at it because it's really hard to compete in that marketplace. And But you can't really use Netflix as a source for that stuff anymore. They're increasingly losing the rights to it. And what they get are big contracts with something like Vivo, which is, like I mentioned in the review, it's a good movie for kids if you think that, you know, Kids just need bright colors and loud music. But the kids I watched the movie with were not particularly impressed by it. Well, the thing, you po- the thing you pointed out in the piece um, is that, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda has, has had um, had a kind of a rough summer with the, with the flop of In the Heights and the controversy over the casting. And he seems to have, uh, his, his strategy seems to be to rally himself into these animated projects where the that level of controversy isn't isn't going to hit as hard. I would argue his most successful project was the music from Moana, which is iconic. If you strip away all the woke elements, there is not really anything there that is all that impressive. Like I I still remember, you know, seeing 1776 when I was a kid and it is very stark. Like no, not a black face to be seen in the entire production, but it's a big plot point, the entire slavery issue and how every character is complicit in it and basically a bad person because of it, and they don't really try to shy away from it. Right, but with Lin-Manuel Miranda, they did, even though everybody in the cast is black or Latino, they don't really talk about slavery. So, you yeah, know, it, the, the, and the thing you point out so well in the article is that, you know, maybe Lin-Manuel Miranda a little bit overrated, or a lot overrated, and somehow he's gotten through. He's gotten through because it is a, he's very, very palatable to white people. There is plenty of good criticism there, there's plenty of good criticism of him like even from other colors there's the entire colorism country and in the heights 
is coming from Afro-Latino people, for example. There was like an off-Broadway stage play for a while that was that's that's a very direct parody of him, where he's just being visited by the ghosts of people from the era in Hamilton, explaining all of the ways he is wrong about every possible minor element of the history of it. It's just, you can't get any kind of coverage. You, nobody who's making these kinds of criticisms gets any kind of coverage because he's like the, the hip new thing with the media class. Yeah, and not, he's, not, and, and he's not even that hip or that new anymore. Yeah, exactly. That That's the funny thing. Devo has a really good trailer. Like, that is the reason that that is the reason why my family thought this would be a good movie to watch for family movie night because of the nice trailer. There'll be more to complain about with Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, coming down the pike. So uh, it's great, great to have you on the show and we will talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. All right. Against my better judgment, I have invited Adam Hirschfelder back on the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. Adam has written another article for us, this time about the popular, controversial, and buzzworthy HBO uh, comedy drama, The White Lotus, created and directed by Mike White. Adam, hello. How are you? Good to be back, Neil. I told you uh, I'd be back. I guess we're both surprised it was so, so soon. Yeah, I don't know. I just, yeah, I, I guess I wish I, wish I could quit you. Um, so, so the white, the White Lotus. I don't currently have HBO. I canceled it. Well, I, I canceled. I was going to cancel it after Game of Thrones, and then the Curb Your Enthusiasm season came up, and then I canceled it. So I'm not watching this HBO content. But the White Lotus, oh. the White Lotus captured the hearts of the bourgeois elite because it's about them. Yeah, no, of course. And you know, look, the, the you know the bourgeois one percenters have always enjoyed, you know programs about themselves and uh you know that you know the, the show was it was you know there was a unique you know there was a uniqueness about it it was you know it was probably pretty interesting but then i t you know as i said in my piece you know i turned against it in the uh, final episode but uh yeah no uh, the one percenters you know they love watching shows about themselves especially shows that rip them to shreds so uh you know perfectly well you know well-timed uh uh you know series from hbo so it's a uh, it's a satire about uh, like a luxury resort in Hawaii, right? It, like, on on the, the Big Island, or did they go to Kauai, or uh, yeah, where yeah, the white the white lotus is you know, obviously stands for many things, but for most first and foremost, and now we know mold for multiple series, white lotus is like a. It's probably like a sub-brand of a, you know, a Hilton or a Marriott because we know they're going to go, as we've heard, to other White Lotus properties. You know, it's like a chain of boutique hotels um, in, in future seasons. So the White Lotus in this show is a kind of boutique hotel uh, in Hawaii. But, you know, the White Lotus Company, which will be the setting for future episodes, uh, I guess we'll see where else they go. So is this like an anthology show, like 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 a Twilight Zone of, of bourgeois vacations? <laughs> And I think that's, you know, kind of where I was left at the end or when I heard that they were going to do other seasons. Like, you know, I thought this was kind of a unique kind of different thing. And then people were really in the show. And then like, what, why do we need future seasons of it? It's going to be just like another kind of, you know, 
wealthy people on vacation with the screwed up lives of them, but, you know, and then screwing over the staff at, you know, another, you know, hotel built on indigenous land, probably like, you know, it's going to be either Africa or some, maybe somewhere, you know, South America. Like I'm, I'm actually very intrigued how they're going to try to make this, you know, unique in a future season. Like, you know, we've already done this in multiple shows at least, you know, and so uh, the fact that there's going to be future episodes of the, or future series of this is, I just found a little bizarre. Yeah, I mean, and it's not like they they saw that the show was a hit and they they then decided, right? This had already been, this was already sort of in the works, right? This was pre-planned. Yeah, I mean, it was before the final episode. Um, they made the decision, so they, you know, probably got you know the results from the first couple episodes, and people were into it, and it got you know this critical acclaim, and you know that's the funny stuff. It, you know, it's just you know obviously the one percenters are watching this, but it's really the critics, uh, who are obviously are in the one percent themselves usually, uh, who really celebrated this show, and uh, you know it was getting buzz a lot of places. You know, travel newsletters writing about it, fashion blogs analyzing what people are on vacation. So you know HBO saw you know a money pit which is all well and good. We all understand the business, but then what, what does that say about the kind of social critique and social satire? They're going to kind of keep this, you know, is Mike White going to keep this going? Um, you know, so I don't know. Well, I just said, should have quit while he was ahead. Well, th- and therein lies the irony. And you point this out in the piece, right? Dallas and dynasty. <laughs> when we were kids in the eighties celebrated the lives of the wealthy in these, these, these ludicrous, you know, soap operas. They, they, they're glorifying this, this, <laughs> this insane lifestyle that they, they lead. And I, I feel like, and you, you're very clever, I hate to admit it, in, in pointing <laughs> this out, in pointing this out, the White Lotus does the same thing, but it but but there's also there's a little bit of a self-loathing. You know, the aesthetics are different, obviously, than in the days right. of Dallas and Dynasty. The hairstyles are calmer, the the fashions are, are, are more <laughs> subdued, the the diction is less melodramatic, but it's the same thing where it's like we're we're and you meant you say the critics are are part of the one percent, but they're really not. They're really they're really like the servants to power. <laughs> yeah, 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 without question. So they want maybe they want to be in the one. They want to be in the one percent. Yeah, right. I, I, it's all the journalists get, listening. They want to get invited. They they want to get invited to Obama's Martha's Vineyard party. They want to be one of the sophisticated people, right? And this right. is a show about the sophisticated people, the people who 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 can who don't have to do it on a junket. Like I've been to like these white lotus like properties. I've I've certainly experienced that, but it was as like a, a slave to the automotive industry. You know, I was on these car junkets, you know, and maybe you have a, a occasionally experienced a bourgeois vacation of your own. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, let's be clear. I've been uh, on uh, many of these uh, bourgeois vacations, and so I I know the clientele, and you know, obviously different than Dynasty and the Dallas. You know, the 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 lifestyles and so forth are getting critiqued here. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's also this kind of, you know, looking at the lives of the service workers or the tourism and, uh, you know, industry. And it's, you know, those people who are, you know, getting screwed over too. And, you know, you're supposed to feel bad for them, but it, you know, yeah. How much have we really advanced here? So yeah, we're, you know, we're not celebrating so much the lives of the one, uh, 1%, but in the end, the one percenters, nothing changes. And uh, these kind of guys go on their merry w- go on their merry way after the one week. So you know, there's a darkness at the at the at the whole of it. And um, again, you know, there was a, a uniqueness to it. But then, it really threw it out the window when they're going to go on an episode two. Like again, what? what, what, what I mean, a series two. What is that thing going to be about? Like we already have like crazy shows like Bachelor in Paradise and all the rest of it. Like what do we need this for? 
Yeah, I, I'm wondering too how it compares to, to Succession, which to me, to my mind, Succession, also an HBO show, is the best yep. show on TV. You know, just the the you know, and talk that Succession to me is the real quote unquote successor, right, to Dallas and Dynasty. It's like a it's it's a critique of the lives of the of the fabulous and wealthy, but but it's also a celebration of them to some extent. Right. Like, who doesn't want to be part of the Roy family, as screwed up as they are? Those people <laughs> those people live large. Right. Yeah, I guess in this case, you don't want to be part of the many families uh, that are featured, you know, obviously on White Lotus. And then you're supposed to feel like, yeah, but these are your families and and so forth. So uh, certainly a a different take, but uh, incredibly popular and just amazing. You know, still all these different articles going on and on about White Lotus. So we'll we'll have to see how it goes over the next, uh, you know, couple seasons of this thing. Um, As I said, probably should have quit while he was ahead. Yeah, well, the um, the special class of people, whoever they are, they love to celebrate themselves. They love <laughs> they to definitely... self-flagellate, but they still go on vacation. <laughs> you, you have no, yes, this is not going to stop people to go to boutique hotels uh, in Hawaii. If anything, of course, how these things work, it'll drive up uh, interest in hotels just like it, uh, where you can go, you know, learn how to scuba dive, and maybe you know, uh, one of your kids will be able to go out and you know, hang out with the uh, in, you know, indigenous people and learn how to um, you know, canoe for a bit on the you know, on the water. So yeah, I'm sure it's going to drive up interest in uh, vacations like this for the one percenters. It'd be like the American way, of course. Maybe it'll maybe it'll, it'll increase uh, tipping a little bit. <laughs> yes, maybe you know if anything you know if you can people be a little nicer to the staffs who work at these uh, you know you know who staff our tourism service industries who and and really staff a lot of our things who made this country work over the past 18 months. If people are a little nicer to them, maybe uh, maybe White Lotus will serve a uh, grander purpose. I, I somehow doubt that. But uh, but you, you never know. All right. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to drift away from the White Lotus and we're going to talk about a truly repulsive television show called Ted Lasso. Adam Hirschfelder, thanks for stopping. We'll talk to you soon. I'll be back. I know. I know. It's sad. <laughs> so one of the biggest pop cultural phenomenon of the last year was the uh, surprise success of the Apple Plus sitcom Ted Lasso, starring Jason Sudeikis, which is about this um, American college football coach who ends up coaching a British Premier League soccer team. Uh, He gets brought over uh, to screw up the team, but he ends up being some kind of heartwarming magic guy who teaches everyone the value of goodness and kindness. Whatever. It was fine. I enjoyed it. It was it was it was a little refreshing. It was it was gripping enough. I mean, not gripping, but it was, you know, it was a pleasant thing to watch. And then, but then this year they they released the second season of Ted Lasso, and Ted Lasso uh, people were so en- enthusiastic about it all over my timeline. They're like, I can't wait for Ted Lasso. It was the only thing that gave me hope during the pandemic. Blah blah blah. And then it comes out, and the second season is absolutely terrible. It takes everything that was fun and good about the first season and just and just covers it with like ounces and ounces of treacle. And then came last week in the middle of August, a Ted Lasso Christmas special. And this was possibly the worst half hour of television I've ever seen. I was deeply offended by it. And I wrote about it in this week's on this week's website. And I brought in um Uh, Book and Film Globe contributor Scott Gold, 
to uh, help me complain about the Ted Lasso Christmas episode. Scott, hello. Hey, Neil. Good to be here, my friend. All right. Good to have you. And thank you once again for being the sounding board for my cranky complaints. But let me tell you, you know, that 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 Christmas episode, I'm not, we're not imagining it, right? It was it was bad. It wasn't great. It wasn't timed really well. Um, I think that's part of the challenge of this season uh, is that I, I imagined that there was so much you know, positive feedback about the positivity of the show that the the writers and producers decided to double down this season. And I think what they're finding is more is not necessarily better when it comes to that sense of positivity for Ted Lasso. Well, right. And, you know, it's one thing to have an optimistic character in the, in the midst of a dark and cynical culture. It's another thing for a show about soccer to become some sort of bad romantic comedy knockoff of love actually i mean it that episode was bad i mean there was a plot line subplot with uh involving roy kent who is this retired um now retired uh defenseman for this soccer team who is now it's like a tv commentator and he's got a, a girlfriend uh sort of a ex-sex pot now marketing manager named keely and they they take this little girl he's a niece who apparently lives with him most of the time i don't know why and she has really bad breath, and they go around on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day or whatever trying to find a dentist um, in Roy's posh neighborhood. That's kind of a funny, cynical plot line. And then the dentist fixes the bad breath problem. And then there's this love actually knockoff where she goes to the boy who teases who teased her. He goes to goes to his house and like drops a bunch of placards, and it was it was really it was bad. And then they ended with them two of them walking down the street to Fairy Tale of New York by the Pogues. I mean, what 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 kind of a choice is that? You know what that song's about? Very, yeah. offended. Very offended. Maybe you weren't as offended as I was. <laughs> I wasn't offended. I was just a little let down because the 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 plot line was genuinely funny. Um, sure. There's something about making fun of a small child's rancid breath that is just there's just something genuinely hilarious about that. It's a it's a really good bit of writing um but they really just they took you know all of that you know good humor that they had built up and they really squandered it in the end with this love actually thing and by the way uh you know a lot of people in my generation like it's like their favorite christmas movie uh i think it's a terrible movie and i'll go on record saying that i am not a love actually fan oh me either no i, I don't really like i don't really like any christmas movies i mean i guess i, I guess i like elf you know I, and I, I get I sort of like it's a wonderful life. I mean, I'm Jewish. I don't I, I don't I don't. I, are you Jewish? I, I, I'm, I am also Jewish. What you couldn't tell by the last name? Well, I mean, there are non-Jewish golds. All the glitters. True. All the glitters is not gold. But, um, you know, uh, I you know, so so, you know, for me, Chris, we was, I was not raised on Christmas movies, you know, or Christmas specials. So, uh, you know, you got you've got to really uh, bring the hilarity or the cynicism for me to in, enjoy a Christmas movie. And this this was just like this just felt like this was just bottom of the barrel stuff. And the all, the noblesse oblige plotline where Ted Lasso and Rebecca, the owner of the of the football team, go around to the projects and like deliver presents to the poor kids. It was just it was, it was so offensive to me. I, I just I couldn't believe they were doing that. You know, how, how did Rebecca get a hold of the letters to Santa? You know? I don't know. That made me. That definitely made me cringe. I think the problem here, 
Uh, I think it's really illustrated best in this episode, which is, uh, you know, one of the major shortcomings of the show is that, you know, Ted Lasso's brand of positivity only works when counterbalanced by a fair amount of cynicism um, and, you know, a little bit of darkness. If it's all, you know, you know, happy, you know, uni- what do they call it? Uh, unicorns and rainbows, uh, then it ceases to be as interesting or more importantly, as funny. Uh, which is what makes Roy Kent such a great character because, you know, he's this ex-enforcer that's just this gruff, you know, guy with rotten language. uh, And, you know, of course he has a heart of gold underneath all of it. But, uh, you know, that gruff exterior is a nice counterbalance to, you know, Ted's being a big uh, fluffy marshmallow. Right. Well, Ted and Keely too, who's also, who's very similar in her, positive like never give up never say die always rooting for everybody and that's okay to have characters like that i agree but i like that i like the tension between ted and rebecca because she was like trying to get revenge on her asshole ex-husband for the divorce and she brought him over to try to ruin the team and suddenly it's like it's this is just a show about everyone who's good and happy all the time it's boring it's boring to watch it's like the opposite of veep where in veep everyone is self-serving and cynical and evil it also made that show hard to watch but it wasn't as hard to watch as this i I just i i don't know i just don't get it you know and i I feel like another you know this is something else that i that i feel about ted lasso you know he's from kansas or wherever he's got a southern accent and yet you know he's this great guy who like espouses like classical liberal values and he's kind of like a blue state fantasy of what a red state person is you know? Yeah, I just take offense as someone who who lives in a small blue dot in a very red state. I'm uh, I'm from and I live in South Louisiana in New Orleans, and it's always bothered me that Ted is from Kansas, I think, and he yes. has a deep Southern accent. Um, it's not that's not a Midwest thing, and I went to college in the Midwest, and they speak very differently than we do down here. Yeah, that's even in Al- Kansas. That's an Alabama accent that he's got going on or something like that. Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, you know, maybe it's not Texas. I live in Texas and it's definitely not that. So, you know, it's like, what are, I don't know. What are we doing here? (laughs) Is my question with Ted Lasso. Why do we want, you know, so I just, I have to think like, you know, like, like you, like everybody on my feed is pretty much like a middle to upper middle class liberal. And they all think Ted Lasso is the bee's knees. And I, and I, and I guess my, my question is why? Well, I think the obvious answer is that, you know, we've had been, been having a really difficult go with uh, the pandemic and everybody needed that sort of positivity in their lives, which didn't come from celebrities singing John Lennon. Um, yeah, and it's true. on the and on the other side, I've noticed that television has gotten darker and darker and more cynical and more cynical recently. You mentioned Veep. Um, when I was thinking about Ted Lasso and thinking of what kind of, you know, the opposite side of the spectrum was, I was thinking about shows like Succession, which I couldn't get through. You know, everybody, everybody loves that show, but I, you know, I tried watching it, but I found all the people to be so horrible on that show that I couldn't connect with anyone. Um, so maybe people, you know, see that brand of, you know, Ted Lasso positivity is, you know, a little breath of, of, of fresh air when everything else is you know, in real life and on television is starting to get a little, uh, a little too dark. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't know. I love succession. Like that show makes me laugh way more than Ted Lasso ever does. I don't, I didn't hate the first season of Ted Lasso. I just, I am just, um, I just find the, uh, I don't know. It's just not, it's not fun for me to watch 
a show where everybody's happy all the time. It, it's like the opposite of Breaking Bad. Right. I think it has something to do with the core of comedy actually being tragedy. Um, and because, you know, that's sort of, you know, that's a, that's a the very basic tenet of the human condition that comedy's, you know, essentially rooted in that we can all understand. Um, right. You know, I, I don't the, know. And when it comes to sports comedies, too, let's face it, the rougher and more cynical and more gross out it is, the better. Right. Like, I, you know, I love East Bound oh, totally. Town. Um, Brock Meyer is extremely funny. And, you know, like, you know, no, nobody loves Major League because it's it's all about clean living. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. I dissent on the Ted Lasso. Thank you for listening to me. I'm 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 a I'm a real grouch about it. I'm gonna hold the line and history will prove me right, as it always does. Thank you, Scott Gold, for sitting here and talking to me about Ted Lasso, the bet noir of my life. I do not believe, I do not believe in Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso is quite problematic to me, at least. We're going to close this week with Fairy Tale of New York from the Pogues, which they used in the Ted Lasso Christmas episode. The Fairy, t- Fairy Tale of New York is a very, very cynical song about alcoholism and lost love and misery, and yet they used it to accent a plot line about a little girl in bad breath. Just, just terrible. Terrible, terrible. But it's a great song. Y'all should listen to it, and y'all should keep listening to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. Check out the site at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. I'm Neil Pollock, your host, your editor, your best friend. We'll talk to you soon. I always value books and films and good TV, but now during a pandemic, I appreciate them, I need them more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes, it's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. Audio Hopper.